This morning we're looking into the Gospel of Mark, and we're learning that Mark is pre presenting Jesus to a group of Roman people who are suffering, and he's asking the question, who is Jesus? He's clarifying, who is Jesus? And as we go through the first eight chapters, the disciples at best are confused. Who is this guy? But there's a turning point in the book where they recognize who he is, and then they recognize that recognizing who he is, you have to commit to the journey. You don't become a Christian just by osmosis. It's a decision where you go, so what does it mean to follow Jesus? And then as you commit to the journey, you learn how to serve him. And so we saw that Jesus takes unlikely people. A couple weeks ago, we were in chapter five, we saw a miserable maniac. And Jesus transformed this guy and he became a missionary of mercy. He went and told everybody what Jesus did for him. And then Pastor Bob last week shared a really encouraging word on how Jesus is there to help us in our sufferings. Well, this morning, we're going to look in chapter 6 at verses 1 through 29, and we're going to see three things. First of all, wherever Jesus went, he taught and he gave invitations. And what we're going to see in the first part of this section is many people refuse to follow Jesus. They refuse his call. But then, the second thing we're going to see is that those who do believe are called to serve, not just to go, oh, I'm glad Jesus saved me, but then he takes us where we are and he teaches us to serve. But then we're going to look at John the Baptist who was serving and find that those who are called to serve are sometimes called to suffer. But let's start with this first really interesting section, verses 1 through 6, where Jesus comes to his hometown, right? You'd think there would be a Jesus parade, a Jesus jamboree, but actually it doesn't go well at all. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We're really grateful that the Word of God is a very central part of the ministry of the church, that the Holy Spirit has given us the Bible and that He takes your Word and transforms our lives. And so I pray for all of us, whether we've been believers for years or if we're still exploring what it means to follow Jesus, that your Word will accomplish your purpose and that we will see Christ so clearly in your Word and respond to Him and that you will grow your church for the glory of God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to mention here that this is not the first time Jesus preached in his hometown. The first time he preached in his hometown in Luke chapter 4, he stood up in the synagogue and he basically said, I'm the Messiah. And he says, and I know you're not going to believe me, but you know what? God often helps Gentiles. They got so mad at him, it says in Luke 4, they dragged him outside and tried to throw him off a cliff. So in and of itself, this was a great act of courage for Jesus to go back to his hometown. But let's, let's read verses 1 through 6, and we'll talk about this analysis of unbelief. Like, why do so many people refuse to follow him? It says he went out from there, and he came into his hometown. And we know that's Nazareth, and that's about 25 miles from the Sea of Galilee. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished. Now that word astonished is, is, is used 16 times in Mark. But don't get too excited about that. A lot of people are amazed and astonished by Jesus, but it never results in any life change. You could be impressed by Jesus, but not be impacted by Jesus. I've seen many times people come, oh, pastor, crying. But at the end of the day, big deal right? Unless your astonishment leads to a, a, a decision to follow him by faith. And so many are astonished. 
but they know this guy. They're like, I remember when he was in his pack and play. I changed his diapers. He never went to school. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Now, in vernacular, the next verse, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? In vernacular, they'd be like, ain't that Joe and Mary's kid? What, what, is he talking to us? This, who does he think he is? We've known this guy. Now, here's an interesting side note. It says, isn't he the son of Mary <clears throat> and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? Now, depending on your church background, maybe you grew up in an Orthodox church or a Roman Catholic church, by the second century, Christians began to hold a reverence for the holy family of Jesus, particularly for Mary. They held her in high regard. And so over time, based on some creeds in the fourth century, both the Orthodox church and the Catholic church began to call Mary and, quote, ever virgin, ever virgin. And this eventually led to a teaching of the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary. In other words, Mary always was and always will be a virgin, and then eventually they added to that that she was sinless. Now, the first thing you do is you go, well, wait a minute. Well, what would I do with a verse like this? It says he had brothers and sisters. And in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 25 of chapter 1, it says, Jesus kept Mary a virgin until she gave birth. So you go, wait a minute. The Bible says this, but I was told this. And so anytime you encounter a place where your church tradition and the Bible don't seem to jive, we're going to learn next week in chapter 7, Jesus said, don't forsake the words of God for the sake of your traditions. Now, the Roman Catholic Church does have an answer for this. I don't necessarily agree with them, and I'm, you know, this is nothing personal, but their, their answer to that is, well, Joseph had uh, children from a former wife. These are all, they're really not his brothers and sisters, but there's really nothing in the text that says that. So Jesus grew up. Now, interestingly also, when it says he was a carpenter, that word often in, in, in that time meant a, a stonemason. And it's probably more likely that Jesus worked more with stone than with wood because there just wasn't a whole lot of wood back in that area, right? In that area, it was far more common to work with stone. And I realize that. I mean, we can't recall all the bumper stickers. My boss is a Jewish mason. No, leave the carpenter, that's fine. But just, you know, it kind of gives you an interesting dynamic to think about. You know, Jesus just went about his business, didn't do any miracles the first 30 years, just worked as a stonemason, a carpenter. But notice verse 3, it says, they took offense at him. Now, one of the things that's interesting when you're reading the Bible is to just go, wait, hey, hang on, ask questions. Like, that is not what I would have expected. I, I even if it just said they didn't believe in him, but what does that mean, they took offense? Like, I think of that phrase and I think, you know, if somebody says, I think Trump's a moron, or I think Trump's wonderful, right? And someone says, well, I take offense at that, right? Either, you know, we're not even going to go there with politics. But the point is, what does that mean to take offense? So I did some study, and this word 
is a really important word in the Gospel of Mark. It's used like nine times, but it has three different meanings. Sometimes this word, which is, uh, we get the word scandalize from. Sometimes this word means to cause someone or lead someone to sin. Now, it's often translated cause to stumble, like to trip, but it really means to cause someone to sin. So later on in chapter 9, Jesus says, if you cause one of these little kids who believe in me to stumble, to stop believing me, woe to you. Be better for a rock around your neck. But the word also can be translated just to fall away from Jesus. So, for example, later in chapter 14, Jesus says, all of you 12 disciples of mine, you're going to scandalize, you're, but it's translated, you're going to fall away, right? But it wasn't permanently, but it had the idea of just moving away from Jesus. Even John the Baptist was tempted to scandalize. Jesus said, blessed are those who don't stumble and fall away from me. Here, though, it means to be repulsed or to repel. In other words, when it says they took offense at him, you might say, they, they were repelled away from Jesus. So it's kind of interesting when you think about the name Jesus and you talk about Jesus, you're in a public setting. Jesus, Jesus, I, what do you think about Jesus? Some people are compelled. That's like a sweet, a sweet word. I, I want to hear that. Did you say Jesus? Let's talk about that. Other people are repelled. They're pushed away by that. And so this whole idea of this word always seems to have this sense. It involves refusing to come to Jesus. It involves departing or moving away from Jesus. So as you think about even that journey, you're like, you, you can follow him or you can, you can turn back or you can turn aside. And this can happen to believers and unbelievers. Some of you take offense. You have not yet given your life to Christ, right? Some of you may have started following Christ, but you've fallen away for a time, like the disciples, and, and God's calling you back. So as I studied this word, and this is something you can do, you can actually look in a concordance and just trace a word through. It's used in, in a number of ways. Because you ask, why would somebody not love Jesus? Why would somebody go, Jesus, I don't want to talk about that. Why would somebody not want to follow and trust him after everything he did on the cross? Well, there's three things I found. Number one, people stumble over Jesus' sayings. Some of the things that Jesus said were hard, right? I could get everybody to agree with this. Oh, I think Jesus is awesome. Remember he said, do unto others. I love that. He's the bomb, right? But then, then I say, well, how about this one? Did you know Jesus said, no one else can go to heaven unless you follow me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. A lot of people stumble over that. They're like, wait, are you saying that you Christians think you're, what may, you're so judgmental? I'm going, wait a minute, I didn't say it, Jesus did. So in John chapter 6, Jesus one time said this, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now he didn't mean it literally, but John says that was a hard saying. And Jesus used this word, he said in John 6, does this cause you to scandalize? Are you going to push away from me because something I said, you don't like it? And believe me, this is one of the reasons why people aren't flocking to Jesus. Because there's something that he says that they don't like, right? And so you can't, Jesus isn't a buffet salad where he goes, have this saying and this saying, but you can pass on this one. 
So you and I, if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to take everything he said and not stumble over something that's hard. Another thing that causes people to stumble is pain or persecution, right? This same word was used in the parable of the sower. Remember, Jesus said, some people receive the word with joy. They're like, wow, you should come to this church. We're learning about Jesus. This is cool. And then their spouse says, what are you, Jesus freak? Or your parents say, that's not our religion all these years. You're telling us we're wrong. And then they go, I don't want to do this anymore. Mark chapter 4, it says, some receive the word with joy, and then they scandalize. They fall away, right? So sometimes it's what Jesus says. Sometimes it's our experiences that cause us to say, ah, I don't want to follow him. Sometimes the thing that causes people to not follow Jesus is there's something out here of the world and of sin that's more attractive to them. So sometimes something as simple as this, somebody says, well, I don't want to give up partying. I really like that. Or I'm living with my girl, but you know what? Hey, Jesus isn't, that's not his business. And Jesus just used some common sense. He goes, I get it. Sinning is fun, right? People wouldn't be sinning if it wasn't fun, right? But he says, if your right hand is causing you to sin, to stumble, same word in chapter nine, he goes, you ought to cut off your hand. He goes, it would be better to at least enter heaven without your hand. So one of the things that repels people from Jesus is they love the sins of this world. If there's anything that's keeping you from coming to Jesus, just think about it. What are you thinking? Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? Oh, well, what will so-and-so think of me? Who cares what they think of you? What does Jesus think, right? You know, oh, if I give this up, I won't be happy. Yeah, you will. You're like, oh, I can't stop doing this. Jesus said, be radical. If your hand's keeping you from following me, cut it off. So, wow, people stumble, and they don't come to Jesus. And here, I think, was just familiarity. Man, I, I knew this kid when he was a baby. I'm not following him. But you know what's interesting is look at Jesus' response. In verse 4, he says, A prophet's not without honor, except in his, in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Which, by the way, this is significant. Hands down, the hardest place to be a Christian is not a church. It's at home, right? Because that's where people see you day in and day out. They see you in the morning. They see you in the evening. They see you when you're mad, sad, glad, or had. So, so it is true. It's really hard to be respected for your faith when, when you're in a, a close place of scrutiny. But sometimes familiarity can breed contempt, particularly among young people. They're like, ah, oh, I grew up around this. This is my parents' faith. I don't know if I really believe this stuff. Be careful of that. Be careful of familiarity and just going, ah, oh, whatever. But, but what's striking is what, what the next two verses say. It says, he couldn't do any miracle there except he laid his hands upon them. And then verse 6 says, he wondered at their unbelief. Now, when you're reading the Bible, stop and ask questions. What do you mean he couldn't do a miracle? Jesus, would you heal me? I'm sorry, I can't. I just... <laughs> but, but I learned in Sunday school, my God is so big. There's nothing my God cannot do. What do you mean God can't do something? Have you ever thought about that? He couldn't do a miracle. Well, actually, it is true. There are certain things God can't do. 
I'll tell you one thing I know he can't do. He cannot sin. Mark this down. It's not just that God will not sin. He cannot sin. If you ask God to tell a lie, Titus chapter 1 says, it is impossible for God to lie. He cannot violate his holy nature. But as we're learning to read the Bible, in this case, it's not that Jesus is limited in his power if I don't cooperate with him. But there are times where God's work in our lives is dependent on our response of faith. If I don't trust and obey him, he's not going to do what I need him to do. For example, when he told the children of Israel, I want you to cross the Jordan and I'll part the river. And they go, let's do this. And he goes, okay, get in the water. And they go, no, part the, red, part the Jordan. He goes, no, get in the water. You take that step of faith and then I'll part the water. So it is important as a Christian to recognize this. There are times that you and I are missing out on God's blessing because we don't trust and obey him. In fact, James chapter 1 says, even when you pray, James 1, 5, you can read this. You need to ask in faith because if you doubt, you're tossed by the wind and you won't receive anything from the Lord. So if you're only half-hearted and you're not ready to follow Jesus, you're not ready to do what he says, don't assume that he's going to do his part if you won't trust him. On the other hand, and this is just as important, some preachers out there, and this burns me up, they tell people, if God didn't heal you, it's your fault because you didn't believe him. And that makes me angry because that's a lie. And that is not true that just because God didn't heal somebody or do a miracle is because of unbelief. There are times that it is not God's plan to heal us. The Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He prayed about it. The Lord did not take it away, and he didn't say, well, Paul, he didn't have enough faith. So, if you've been praying for a miracle, don't assume that it hasn't happened because of your unbelief and lack of submission, but consider that it could have been. Okay, so we'll have a balance there. You know in your heart, is there something you're holding back refusing to surrender to God, and you're like, no, you do this first. And God's like, no, trust me, obey me, just surrender, and I'll work on your behalf. So, so actually, we should come away from this passage excited, like God does miracles, and he does miracles on the basis of simple faith, like I'm going to trust you, Jesus. I don't care what they're saying. If this is what you said, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. I'll take that step, whether it's to get baptized or profess my faith or to turn away from something, even if my friends go, yo, man, you're not coming to the party? No, Jesus, I'm trusting you now. I'm going to follow you. And it is cool. And what I find is God often takes new converts, and he does special miracles to encourage them. In Galatians 3, Paul said to the Galatians, don't you remember how your Christianity began by faith and God was working miracles among you? Some of you can look back, yeah, when I first came to Jesus, I saw this wonderful answer, answer to prayer. Keep that simple faith in the words of God. But now let's turn from this. We, we look at people refusing to believe in Jesus. But the second thing we're going to see here in 7 through 13 is that those who do believe in Jesus are then being called to serve. You don't just become a believer 
and then just be saved. You're saved in order to serve. And so Jesus takes his 12. Look in verse 7. It says, he summoned the 12 and he began to send them out in pairs. So now, when we talk about serving here, it doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is saying, okay, when church is gone, everybody go two by two. You go to the train station and preach. You go down to Wawa. You go over to the Trenton Thunder. He's not sending everybody just to go out and preach, but he's clearly sending every Christian to serve. And the place that we serve, we learn from the New Testament, is in the local church as part of the body of Christ. So before we even read this passage, ask yourself, if I'm a believer, what am I doing to serve Christ? Some of you might be doing too much, and we're going to talk about that. Some of you aren't doing anything. Some of you used to do stuff. So this passage isn't the end-all on service, but it has some interesting insights, and I want to talk about them. But, but let's read it, because it's not what you would expect. It says, he began to send them out in pairs. And so here I'll, I'll simply note this, that often we serve in community, right? Jesus doesn't need lone wolves. And you'll find that when you get involved, even if you say, hey, I'm willing to start setting up chairs, that's where you'll often build your community. Hey, I, 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 these people that are going to Houston, I'm assuring you that they're going to have some lasting friendships that come out of that. So often it's in community that we're learning to help each other, to serve together. If you're working down in the nursery, you start meeting some other people. You start engaging in a small group. So he sends them out two by two, and then he gives them authority. Okay, we're going to come back to that. But now they're going, okay, um, what should I pack? Is anybody else here, can you feel my pain? I hate packing because I have OCD when it comes to packing, right? I'm, I literally, I get stressed out if I have to go somewhere because I'm like, all right, do I, need, do, do I need this or do I need that? And thankfully, my wife is very calm and sane about this. Sometimes she's like, here, just take this. So I'll be like, why did I bring seven pair of shorts? I only needed one pair of shorts. Did, did I need two toothbrushes? Did I need the cord for my electric toothbrush? You're only going away overnight, okay? So the disciples are, 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 are getting ready to grab their Samsonite, right? And, they're thinking, and Jesus is like, hey, listen, we're going to go real lean this time. Almost, it's, it's almost funny, right? Not to them, but to us. Look, so it says, he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey. And you're like, okay, no, I get it. Just a carry-on, right? I got my, my Gucci leather bag. That's good. I can... I got real, I roll everything up, I pack real. No, no, he goes, don't take anything. Just take a staff, which would be a stick for protection. No bread. Well, wait, you know, I got to have, I, I have low blood sugar. You know, I got to, and, and I'm hypoglycemic, and I, you know, I have to take my, no, no, no bread. Well, what am I going to eat? I'll take care of that. No bag. Wait, my Gucci bag, I got that at Marshall's. This is my coming out. Nope. No money. No money. He's like, okay, I get it. My mom taught me that. Don't travel with cash. Have my traveler's checks. He's like, no, nothing. Nada. Well, how am I going to get food? How, you know, Motel 6 doesn't take my credit card, you know. Oh, trust me, okay? Don't even put on two tunics. Please tell me you don't do this. If you do this, don't raise your hand. Some people just save on that bag fee. They wear all their clothes. <laughs> it's true. I read about someone who passed out on a plane. He had like six outfits on, and he got so hot, he passed out. I'm like, dude, here, I'll pay for your bag, right? 
So they're like, yeah, I got to take, no. So, but there's a reason for this. Jesus is teaching them to completely depend on him. Because the next verse, they're like, well, where are we going to stay? He goes, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And you're like, okay, Jesus, we're just missing one thing. If I told you, hey, go up to um, Newark and do, do a couple things up there and come back in a few days. Whatever house you enter, just stay there. You're like, wait, wait a minute, what do you mean whatever house I enter? Just walk into someone's house? Well, in Middle Eastern culture, hospitality was a premium. And so people would offer if they were receptive to your message, they would offer you to stay with them. But Jesus says, don't upgrade. Whatever house you stay in, stay there. It might be the poorest family in town and you're sleeping in with the dog. And then two days later, the wealthiest guy in town says, hey man, why don't you come stay with me? And you're like, let me get my bag. Oh wait, I don't have any. Yeah, I'm coming there. And now you offend the poor person. So Jesus is just saying, look, totally depend on me. But then he says, in all seriousness, any place that doesn't receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake off the dust from the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil sick people and healing them. So I just want to say a couple of things about serving Jesus. Number one, these guys weren't ready. Like, are you kidding me? Every time we read, like, they're like, what, huh, who, what? No, Jesus, don't do that. He goes, yeah, I'm doing that. So don't wait till you think you're so ready to do something for Jesus. Oh, I could never do that. I'm not ready. I, don't, I didn't go to that there, Cairn University, and learn. You don't need to have it all together, right? These guys were in training, and, and they had minimum knowledge and minimum faith. So if you're not doing anything for Christ, don't hide behind that idea that, oh, what if they ask me something I can't answer? Or what? I, I don't know how. If, if, if you're not plugged in, you're not doing anything, we'll help you. We need, this church is growing. There's lots of things going on. We'll find you a place to get plugged in, but we need more volunteers. More, you know, sometimes, for example, we can use more help in the nursery. Well, that's not my gift. Well, I never met anybody whose gift was changing diapers, right? That's not a gift, right? Or we need, to, like when the service is over, I think it would be awesome if every strong man, this will bait him into it because they're like, he, he's talking to me now, honey. Every strong man would stack seven chairs up. Then the people that are grabbing the chair. We got plenty to do here, okay? So, but you'll notice that we're in training and we're serving with dependence on God. It says, he gave them authority and then he sent them out. God's going to give you enablement. That's what's so exciting about being a Christian. The Bible says we each receive gifts from the Lord, and then we, we use them to serve one another. So you may have a gift you don't even know about. And one of the prominent gifts that's often so helpful in the church is a gift called the gift of helps. People with the gift of helps are like, as long as I don't have to talk. I get red blotches all over my face when I talk in front of people. But if you ask me to do something, I love that the gift of service, the gift of leadership, the gift of administration, the gift of hospitality, the gift of mercy. And then there are speaking gifts. Some of you have teaching gifts, evangelist gifts, encouragement, exhortation. But, but just be thinking, Lord, are you asking me to do something you won't enable me? No, I'll give you, I'll equip you. So if you're not doing anything like, okay, I'm shaking you a little bit, like it's time to, 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 to go out, to step out in faith and say, Lord, 
Am I supposed to go on one of those trips? Could I, could I be an apprentice in a Sunday school class? But I want you to notice that there was a real seriousness to their message here. I learned something this week. This whole idea of going like this. Like, if you ever watch a basketball game, you'll see people doing this all the time or doing this all the time. You know why? They want to get the dust off their feet because they don't want to slip. In fact, there's a little sticky thing you can stand on before you go in the game. But this had a symbolism behind it that I did not know about. Jesus did not introduce the idea of wiping your feet. I read in a commentary, Jews who traveled outside of the Holy Land, they already had a custom. When you came back into the Holy Land, you would shake the dust off when returning home, lest you pollute the Holy Land with Gentile dust, right? So think about that. So, so all the Jews knew that, like, we're God's people, right? So, oh, where were you? Oh, I had to go to Syria. Ooh, let me get this Gentile dust off because I'm one of God's chosen. Imagine the shock when Jesus says, now go to these Jewish people and tell them to repent and follow me. Tell them that, sorry, there's a new way now and you need to follow me by faith. And if they say no, he says, shake the dust off your feet. Well, I'll bet you that went over well. Can you imagine all the religious people who are like, what? It's kind of like when, when, when some of us tell our religious friends, you can't get to heaven by being good. And they're like, what? We're going, no, the Bible says by God's grace are you saved. Only sinners can get saved. When you admit that you're a sinner and there's nothing you can do, and there's no price that you could pay or no good deeds that have anything to do. It's absolutely Jesus and the cross. He paid it all, and you just throw yourself at him and trust him. And they're like, are you kidding me? You mean like murderers and sinners like that? And you're going, no, I'm not kidding you. And so this is the joyful privilege we have, and it's serious. Every one of us is to take this message. Somebody, a friend of mine from years ago was visiting this morning. He goes, do you guys have a bus ministry here? I go, nope, it's word of mouth. Each one of us, as we interact with our friends and family members and kids, we're earnestly imploring them to repent, to turn, and to commit their lives to following Jesus. Now, real quickly, the last thing we're going to see here is that sometimes those who are called to follow Jesus are called to suffer. So Mark leaves the disciples to, to tell us how John the Baptist died. And then he loops back around and says, and then the disciples came back. But I'm not going to comment much on this, but it's just a fascinating passage. And then we'll close. Verse 14 says, King Herod heard about this, for his name had become well known, and, and people were saying that John the Baptist had risen from the dead, and these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, no, he's Elijah, and others were saying he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard about this, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Now, this is not the King Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus. This is Herod Antipas, who, who was king over Galilee. But you'll notice it says, Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. This was a mess. Herod Antipas was 
a bad dude. He, was, he, was, he, was a, he wasn't a good man. So he, he, he liked his brother's wife. His brother's wife was the daughter of a king of another country. They often did that for political things. So Herod said to his brother or to his brother's wife, hey, you should be married to me. So she leaves her brother or she leaves her husband to, to marry Herod, right? Which later cost Herod dearly because the king of that country, when he found out what Herod's brother did to his daughter, attacked Herod and Herod lost. But meanwhile, John the Baptist is a political observer and, he going, and he's thinking, that ain't right. You don't do that. Now, Herod's not a Christian, but listen to this quote I read about Herod or about John. John was a prophet without price whose thundering call exposed unrighteousness anywhere. Like the courageous prophets of old, John understood that proclaiming God's word included moral responsibility. In other words, nowadays no one wants to say, hey, that's wrong. It's not a mistake. It's wrong. Sin. And we don't have to be judgmental, but sometimes we need to call out sin. This guy says this, there were no sacred cows in John's herd. He didn't read the polls before speaking. He had no special interest group. group. He didn't predicate what he said on the chance of success. He had a costly courage. Because if we read this whole story, what we would find is that John called out Herod. He said, Herod, that's wrong. And Herod's wife wanted to kill John. And John tried to protect Herod. Or Herod tried to protect John. But at the end, in this drunken, foolish vow, he sent and had John the Baptist beheaded. And verse 29 says, when the disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Now you think about this, you go, why did Mark put that in there? Like, I don't need all the gory details of John getting his head cut off. Think about the people that are reading this. These are Christians in Rome who are being persecuted. And they're wondering, is the emperor going to come after me? And then they read about Jesus' followers, and they're like, we're followers of Jesus. And they read about how Jesus sent them out to share the gospel and minister to people. And then they read about Herod. And they read about John. And they're forced to ask themselves, what would I do? What am I going to do? You see, some might say that Herod was silenced, but I don't think so. He was slain, but he wasn't silenced. We're still talking about him. Cain killed Abel, but he didn't silence him. The Bible says, he being dead yet speaks. And so for all of us as Christians, we realize that in our culture right now, to say certain things are wrong, there's a cost to that. So I want to encourage you as a Christian to be winsome and gentle, but to recognize that if we're going to follow Christ, the Bible says all who follow Christ and try to live a godly life and try to talk about Christ will be persecuted. That's just the way it is. And so as we close this morning, I want you to think about this as, as we go. Jesus is calling us as his followers, number one, to learn to serve, okay? So either you are serving, you used to serve, or you need to start serving. But he's also calling us to be willing to suffer. And finally, he's calling us 
to seek to avoid stumbling. So as we're closing, I want to ask you first, right now, ask yourself, what are you doing to serve Christ? You, you know, get out of the nebulous. What are you doing? Are you, are you, are you helping with something? You, you, you're doing vacation Bible school? Are you leading a Bible study? Are you opening up your home? Are you going to the rescue mission? You know, if you're not doing anything, right, Jesus is saying, okay, it's time for me to start grooming you. If you, can, you don't have to figure it out today, but if, if, if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you and you're going, I, I need to start doing something, we'll help you. That's what pastors are supposed to do. It says, equip the saints for the work of service. We're coaches. We're trying to, to engage in the game, but Jesus himself wasn't a solo lone wolf. Let me do it all. He's like, come on, guys, right? And Jesus is willing to trust guys that weren't ready, all right? So if you're not doing anything, if you're doing too much, if you're out every night and your, your spouse doesn't even know you, your kids don't even remember who you are, Jesus doesn't ask you to lay down your life for the church. He already did that. You know, keep a balance with your family, but let's all get engaged. It's exciting what God's doing. And let's step up in faith and be willing to talk about him to our loved ones and friends and neighbors. Maybe do something crazy like starting a Bible study or inviting your neighbors over and building relationships. If you're suffering, is there any way or any area, and this is, this is where I'm leading, anybody can stumble over Jesus. Even his inner circle, he said, you're all going to stumble tonight. You're all going to fall away. So ask yourself deep down, am I moving towards Jesus in full surrender and faith, or is there something that's keeping me back, right? Is it, is it some sin? Is it some fear? Like, what will people think? Is it pride? Are you ashamed because secretly you've, you've fallen away, but you want to maintain your image? Is there anything that's kind of pushing you back? One of the wonderful things about Jesus is he's so full of mercy. The Bible says a broken and contrite heart. He'll never despise. He won't say, I gave you a chance and you blew it. So if you're truly a Christian, if you've been stumbling or falling away or not following him because of, you're like, well, I'm mad at God because he let this happen to me, then move towards him in faith and surrender. That's scary, right? Well, I don't know. He's got to show me. No, he, he marvels when, when we don't trust him. He hasn't given up on you. If you're a Christian, he that began a good work in you will perform it till the day of Christ. So he never throws his kids to the curb but you may be missing out on blessings. And then finally, every commitment to Christ has to start somewhere, right? There has to be a starting point committing to the journey. So as Benjamin comes, from time to time, I just give like a real simple invitation. I, I'm not gonna do 10 lines and beg and say, we're not leaving until somebody comes forward. I'm not doing this for me, but I have found over the years that allowing people an opportunity to publicly just step out and, and say, I want to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus asked people to do publicly. It wasn't like secret service, like, I'll follow Jesus, but no one's going to know about it, right? I'm going to fly under the radar, right? I'm a chameleon. So, so let me just explain why we do this from time to time. The Bible says you should confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so what I want to do is just give you an invitation. If you have never publicly professed that you want to follow Jesus, Right? If you just want to go, 
I want people to know that I'm a believer. And I, you became a believer yesterday or you became a believer five years ago, but you've kind of just like never said it. I'm not talking about people who have, we know you're saved, but if you've never told anyone, you've never really publicly said, I'm ready to follow Christ. Even if you just pretended in the past, but you're like, I'm all in. This is an opportunity. And I have just found that people often are just moved by God. Frequently people have said, I don't even know what happened. I just got up and came forward, but I just knew I wanted to let people know that we're following Christ. And so we're going to have a baptism in August. I've talked to a number of you have said you're going to be baptized, but I just like to give people an opportunity to say, hey, you know what? Count me in. Jesus would call people to come and they wouldn't slip them a note that says, can you meet me behind the barn because I don't want anybody to know. So at some point they just stood up in front of people and it's a mystery. It's a marvel. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. We don't know who the Holy Spirit, but God, you know, if God's moving in your heart. So we're just going to sing one line. I'm not going to beg and plead, but I, I believe God's at work and we want to let the Holy Spirit move. So if you're feeling that, you know, just step out in faith. The devil's telling you, don't do this, you know. All right, Benjamin, let's sing together and then just come and stand and say, hey, pray for me. I want to follow Jesus. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. To him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let's pray together. I'm not discouraged. I'm just casting the gospel net. The Holy Ghost is catching the fish. If you're not ready, you want to talk to somebody, before you leave, talk to somebody. But the most important thing is if there's something keeping you from coming to Jesus, figure it out. Cut it off. Talk to somebody and trust him. Throw yourself upon the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you're making disciples and that as your forgiven followers, we're learning to make disciples. And we don't have any strength of our own. We're fearful and weak. We don't always trust you. We're all tempted to fall away and get mad or sad or give up. But you're building your church. And thank you for this ragtag band of men who became mighty, not because of their abilities or their education, but because they were willing to follow you. So continue to grow our church, Lord, with followers who come hell or high water that we would be willing to live and die for Jesus. Help us to love each other. And I pray that every single believer in our church will serve you faithfully. Comfort those who are suffering today. And we just thank you for meeting with us and speaking to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.